Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 165. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we uh, bless you for a brand new year, and we thank you for a fresh opportunity to uh, study your words, to um, pour into your spirit, to to avail ourselves of, of your truths, and to be a people who are strong in the Lord, who, who are not swayed by political opinion and, and the latest, uh, um, uh, you know, um, wave that just goes back and forth and, and pushes people left and right. Um, we're going to keep our eyes focused on you and your promises and what you are uh, doing in our midst as communities, as congregations, as families, as individuals. Help us to um, be um, sober-minded, help us to, to be vigilant, help us to be diligent, uh, to press in, help us to turn from sin and to turn to you and to um, allow your Holy Spirit to to uh, continue to um, lead us and guide us. And uh, we'll stay the course as we keep our ears focused on Yeshua, our Lord and our Master. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Bishim Yeshua, Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me once again. It's a brand new year, 2022. Uh, my name is Ben Lyman Hanavi, and these are the live internet studies. Let's just jump right into the final Romans 14. Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, this is a study on Romans 14. This is the final study. We made it all the way through this lengthy study that is available on my website. I'll give you all those details a little bit later in the study, but let's just jump right into it. Uh, the study is available on my website at tatesatorah.com, and then there's a link right near the top that is um, uh, set aside for Romans 14. And if you click on the study, uh, there's an outline that'll allow you to see that there are 18 study points, kind of like chapters, and we are in that final study point, chapter or point 18, which covers Romans 14 verses 22 and 23. And I've entitled this section, how do we keep the faith we have between ourselves and God? And as to why I named it that, uh, let's read the two relevant passages and you'll see why I named it this. Romans 14, 22 and 23, if you look on your screen right now, we're reading from the ESV, uh, starting in verse 22, Paul says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself on himself for what he approves. That sounds rather odd. Paul, are you telling me not to witness to people about my faith in Jesus? Are you trying to tell me that if I have faith in God and faith in his commandments and faith in his provision that I shouldn't tell anybody? Well, I think it's obvious that that's not what he's teaching, but you'd be surprised how many commentaries kind of hint in a, in a direction that says, well, you know, um, don't be so vocal about what you believe. I'm thinking, what? Okay, well, so we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, and then in verse um, 23, I think he brings us back into the context of what this particular chapter in Romans is really dealing with, which are food-related um, challenges in the local community there. He says in verse 23, the final verse, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So I can I say that right away, and we can see this up front, that the faith that he mentions in verse 22, right, um, supiston, is the same faith that he mentions ekpistios in verse 23. Um, it's it's really the context of the faith about certain 
things, certain food origins and things like that. Um, that's the context of the faith. I don't think he's talking generically, overall general principle. Hey, if you're a believer and you've got faith in God, don't share that with anyone else. Keep that faith to yourself. That would obviously contradict what we read elsewhere in the gospel, you know, go into all the world and preach the gospel, Yeshua told us the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28, the final uh, chapters in Matthew. Well, the, the, Paul's not obviously not contradicting what the Master said. Let's read the uh, Greek real quick, and then we'll jump into the study. I'll just read down through it, because most of it's self-explanatory. Uh, the Greek on, of verse 22 on the right side of the page says, Su, piston, he ekes, um, exes kata sautan, exe Inopion to theu makarias ha me krinon hauton in ho daki madze. And then verse uh, 23 says, ha de dia krinamenos in fage kata krekrit kata, this is always a tongue twister, kata kekritai hati uk ek pistios pan de ha uk ek pistios hamartia esten. And that'll be the Greek of the two verses that we're going to be looking at. All right, let's take a look at my notes. Um, and again, I think it's somewhat self-explanatory, but I'll read down through the notes. I'll try to pause as, um, as as little as possible and just let the commentary speak for itself. So let's follow along with me. These are my own words. I say earlier in this chapter, this is chapter 14 we're looking at, we saw Paul appealing to the foundational gospel truths of what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, that's in, in italics, because those are Paul's words, what makes for peace and mutual building between messianic communities of faith, where Jews and Gentiles, we recall, were coming together, right? Um, the quote about mutual building and peace and things like that is referencing uh, chapter 14 verse 19 with that that terminology and you can go back and look at my notes but i go ahead and summarize some of it here i say in my notes what i showed is how it is entirely plausible right there's lots of other um reasons paul doesn't say exactly what's on his mind when he talks about what makes for peace that we're supposed to pursue but i say it's entirely plausible that what was a that what paul was appealing to was not to human strength kind of like what modern um, psychiatrists and psychologists and even a many uh, modern-day preachers today might appeal to kind of the inner you, the strength of human ingenuity and, you know, the human spirit, like uh, maybe Oprah might say, you know, let's let's tap into the to the true you. That's not what Paul is going to appeal to over uh, at the end of the day. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with tapping into your own inner resources and and knowing um, who you truly are in God. That's 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 not really what I'm getting at either. Rather, Paul realizes that the problem is spiritual, and therefore the solution is spiritual as well. And so what I say is not to human strength and ingenuity, as clever and ingenious as those may be at times, right? We are a clever bunch. But instead, I think Paul is appealing to the true inner peace won for us by our Messiah Yeshua when he did what? And let's let's focus in on this part. When he gave his life to not only rescue us from the domain of darkness and bring us into his marvelous light, recall the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, right? This is the work that Messiah did for us to bring us together, but 
also Paul would be quick to um, remind us that Yeshua tore down the walls of separation and animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And how did he do this? Now, this is the group that Paul is talking to. Jews and Gentiles in the Roman community. These are the folks that are having their food differences between one another. What did Yeshua's death on the cross accomplish for us as Messianic communities that are comprised of Jews and Gentiles? He knitted us together in the Holy Spirit as a unified new humanity in the body of Messiah. And we're referencing Paul's words in Ephesians 2, um, verses, um, I put in my notes, 14 through 18. Go back and read that on your own. So this is the, the true peace that Paul is going to appeal to in the Roman communities. You guys are fighting. You guys have some serious differences that cannot be, um, you can't just look the other way at, uh, at this case. Because left unchecked, um, you guys are going to tear yourself apart internally. You're going to destroy your witness uh, there in Rome. You're not going to be uh, usable vessels for the Lord because you're, you've got so much infighting and tearing one another down and judgmental attitudes um, that we read about in Romans chapter 14 that um, you're not going to be in a place where you're going to be a, a, a proper witness. No one's going to listen to uh, what you have to say about Yeshua, the Messiah, uh, because you guys can't even settle your differences uh, again against one another, over and against each other. So let's keep reading um, my notes here and talk about this. Speaking of the victory that only Yeshua could win for us as Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, our new identity is as fellow saints and fellow members. We're talking about the body of Messiah. We're talking about the brothers at the internal level, Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. It is true that I believe that Paul has a larger brotherhood in mind when he writes his letters. This would be the brotherhood of Israel, that Gentiles have been made um, fellow partakers and fellow uh, saints with and fellow uh, citizens with, like we read about also in Ephesians chapter 2. This is true. That's the larger, what I call larger umbrella association with Paul's larger faith community. This would include unsaved Jews as well. But primarily, we, also, we already know that when he uses the word a brother, uh, Adelphos or Adelphoi or you know the singular or the, or the plural in his letters, that he's primarily talking about believing Jews and Gentiles. And thus, even in this letter, in this part of our letter, Romans 14, he's appealing primarily to the believing element in the Roman congregation there. This is who I'm also addressing right now in this part of my letter. Our new identity, who's the our? It's the Jew and Gentile in Messiah. Because outside of Messiah, you've yet to put on that new identity. Understand what I mean? You're simply um, walking around under your own um, identity. You, you haven't taken on that, that new man yet that Paul talks about. So that's the kicker. That's the key. That's the man that the Holy Spirit can work with, the man who has a circumcised heart that the Holy Spirit can uh, convict and can uh, empower to uh, change his perspective on uh, the other people. So this new identity as fellow saints and fellow members, it's not merely an identity with the larger community of faith in national Israel. Okay, see Ephesians 2, 19-22. When Paul says that you have been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel, speaking to you former Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, go back and read it on your own, 
He is discussing the truth that he talked about in Romans chapter 11 in his olive tree theology um, example. The wild olive branches who are the Gentiles by faith in Messiah have been grafted into a family tree of Abraham, the cultivated olive branches, and thus in the engrafting process they've been brought nearer to the larger community of faith in national Israel. This is the way Paul describes it in his day. But I say in my commentary specifically, we believing Jews and Gentiles, the remnant of Israel, I'm going to say here, we are grafted into the believing branches of remnant Israel. Remember, the church is not some brand new identity or entity that Paul envisioned suddenly was created in the first century. Paul recognized, and he even talks about this in Romans chapter 15, if we were to continue our study from this chapter into the next, there is an existing community of faith, the Holy Ones, that Paul envisioned whenever he's writing. He understands that Gentiles are bring, uh, brought into this family of God, this family of Abraham. And he, and he wrote about this earlier in his letter in Romans chapter 4 as well, about how that if you are a, f- a believer in Jesus, if you are a Gentile and you, and you place your faith in Yeshua and it's genuine, then you are a child of Abraham. He also talks about this in Galatians, uh, where he, uh, I think it's also chapter 4, where he talks about it's through the Spirit that we cry Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption that comes to live inside of us once you um, surrender your life to Yeshua. So it's the remnant of Israel that we're grafted into as Gentiles. We're brought into the existing family of God. And what happens is this results in Jews and Gentiles in Christ as belonging to the same body, which I say ultimately takes precedence over the outward differences often raised by our social, religious, and ethnic upbringings, right? So go back and read Romans uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 32, where Paul uh, introduces his olive tree uh, picture there. Jews and Gentiles coming together uh, for the purpose of serving God, um, uh, forming the body of Messiah, serving one another, and thus um, we have no place to be tearing one another down over something as 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 innocent as simple as food. What do I say in my commentary? Love and service to one another is now the rule of the kingdom. Let me pause and let that sink in. We can't afford to tear one another down. That's not love. Go back and read First uh, John chapters one, two, and First John, Second John, and Third John. Just, just read all of the the um the smaller letters of John, First, Second, Third John, where the one of the primary messages there is loving your brother, loving your brother, loving that one who is part of the same body that you are, loving that one who has been made whole just like you have. Remember, we all approach this um, this family from a broken perspective. None of us were born into it perfect. We all have our own baggage and our whole, what was one preacher, I heard one preacher say, we all have our 
uh, holdups or headaches or heartaches and our whole our hangups, something like that, a whole bunch of H words. But um, you know, none of us are perfect. We don't have a right to look down our nose at at the guy sitting across the table from us just because he's eating pork and we're not, right? I'm holier than thou because I've I've figured out what what the Torah tells me I should and should not eat. And look at you, you're you're still some some idiot who's bringing um, puffy bread to his Passover service, right? We don't have the right to, to look down our nose at one another because of that. So what I'm saying in my commentary is love and service to one another is now the rule of the kingdom, a rule I say that the Lord Messiah Yeshua himself demonstrated by becoming a servant to the Jewish people. This is going to um, play into Paul's argument. To the Jewish people, which is an example that Paul's going to appeal to in the very next chapter using the first 13 verses. So Let's take our Romans 14 study for a moment. Let's allow it to spill over a bit into Romans chapter 15 so that we can catch the context, really the, the, the what I call the proper ending to his discussion that he began in Romans 14. It's unfortunate that sometimes chapter breaks happen where they do. Um, there's nothing to suggest that the chapter breaks are actually inspired uh, scripture, that they had to be where they were. Um, we know the scriptures themselves are inspired, but the verse breakdowns and the chapter breakdowns seem to be uh, man's own invention. Sometimes they work uh, with the text, and sometimes they work slightly against the context. And I think this is one of those cases where it actually works a little bit against us, because what Paul began earlier on in chapter 14 in the first few verses, he doesn't actually bring to a close until this um, section here in chapter 15, all the way around verse 13. So what I'm going to do, if I were the one who actually translated the Bible, Paul's original letter, I would have broke chapter 14 off at chapter 15, verse 13, and that would have been chapter 14. And then chapter 15 would start where we have in our Bibles um, 15, verse 14. You guys understand what I'm saying? So let's read... Uh, chapter 15, the first 13 verses. And again, it's self-explanatory. I don't think I have to do too much commentary, but notice that it's the same um, theme uh, uh, of chapter 14, which is, you know, this unification of Jew and Gentile, this unity of um, of of the strength of, of true peace brought on by um, the, the uh, example that our Lord left for us. And the way that we can stop fighting amongst ourselves as Jews and Gentiles, especially over something as petty as food, the way that we can solve that problem is to look to the master, get our eyes off of each other, and get our eyes focused on the one who um, bled and died for us. Okay, Stop looking at each other's faults, and let's put our eyes on the one who's faultless, who's blameless, and let's look to his example and allow his spirit to motivate us in our um, interpersonal relationships with one another. So here's what Paul has to say. This is Romans 15, but just picture as if when Paul wrote it, that he really ex he expected the congregation to read this part of his letter in conjunction or right after what, they, what we just read in Romans 14. Here's what Paul has to say. We who are the strong, so right away, he's talking about the same group that he already mentioned in chapter 14, the weak and the strong, the same element, the same people, we who are the strong. And now he actually names the strong, something he didn't actually do in the previous chapter. And notice also he 
puts himself in that group. So how we define the weak and the strong, something we went at great pains to try and establish earlier on in the study, how we, how we define who the weak and the strong are, no matter which um, definitions we come up with, um, we have to admit that Paul is part of the strong group. Right, because he says, We, we who are the strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So we got the weak and the strong, right? Who are they? Most commentators will tell you that the weak are those Christians, primarily Jews, who make their claim to faith in Jesus, but at the same time, they have this um, preference for keeping Torah. And the weakness is directly tied to their. Torah keeping, thus the Messianic Jews. If that is true, then when Paul says we who are strong, then this means Paul would not identify himself as a Messianic Jew. He's putting himself in the alternate camp. The weak are Jewish Christians who are still holding on to vestiges of the law of Moses. Well, that means that I am a weak. I'm one of the weak. Because I am a Messianic Jew. Yep, Ariel is a Messianic Jew. What does that mean? It means I believe in Jesus and I keep the law of Moses to the best of my ability. But according to Paul, this makes me one of the weak, if that's the the correct identity of, of the weak, according to most Christian commentaries. There are alternate views of who the weak might be. One of them is purported by Mark Nanos, a Jewish author who's not a believer, but he's a very good historian. And he proposes that the weak are not actually even Christian Jews to begin with. They are instead those Jews who are part of the larger umbrella corpora, uh, community of faith that Paul would recognize as having faith in God, or at least proposing faith in God. They also have a loyalty to Torah, but they are entertaining the thought of who and what Jesus means to the Jewish community. They're in what I like to call um, deliberation mode, and search mode, um, investigation mode. They're trying to figure out who Jesus was. You know, was he the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Was is is he the one that I should personally place my faith in uh, for personal atonement, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So they're not hostile to the gospel. I think this fits better with the context of what history has left for us in describing these um, uh, two communities, Jew and Gentile. And I think it also fits with the context of who the weak are. So Paul is a strong. What does that mean by strong? It means he's a believer. He's a Jewish believer. He does keep Torah, and therefore weak is not associated with his Torah keeping. And it shouldn't be in, in our minds as well. All right. So Paul says, we who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And what? Not to please ourselves. There's the problem right there. That's part of the judgmentalism, is the fact that we're selfish in our pursuit of holiness and righteousness. We're doing whatever seems to be right in our own eyes, and we're not considering our fellow man. We're not even thinking about the fact that this is a group effort that we've all been brought together as Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, and that we're supposed to be serving one another. That's precisely why they were judging one another is because they weren't serving one another they were out to serve themselves and thus how do i know that you're saying well are you assuming that no paul says let's not please ourselves therefore why did paul write that because there he must have been prompted by the holy spirit to put his finger on the problem they were not serving one another what does paul continue to say let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up 
And that is part of the solution. The lasting peace that comes about in our communities, especially over these matters of food, doesn't happen because we are cleverly figuring it out on our own. It comes from something that's outside of ourselves. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to my own needs and desires and to say, I'm going to serve my brother, right? That, that comes from a strength that I can't muster up all the time. In fact, if you look at today's Christianity, you'll find that a lot of the reason why uh, much of the church is so weak and fractured and and frail and 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 helpless and and in a place where we can't uh, really have a, a a good witness uh, among uh, around other other unbelievers, a lot of that is uh, due to the fact that we're simply so selfish, uh, selfish. We're self-serving. We're not trying to please our neighbor and to build him up and to um, look out for his good. All we're doing is we're going to church to see what God can do for me. You know, it's like the old Janet Jackson song. What have you done for me lately? Right? Those of you who, are, who grew up in the 80s understand my little uh, pop uh, culture reference there. What have you done for me lately, God? That's the kind of the mindset and the mentality of today's Christianity, which is pathetic. Right? It's not the Bible. Read, read the Bible with eyes opened up. It's not a book about what has God done for you. God saved you so that you can serve him. Okay. Last time I checked, it's all about surrendering to Messiah. He's the one that wears the label Lord, not me. It's not Ariel. He's not the Lord. So if Yeshua is your Lord, if Christ is your very savior, then you will be driven to serve not only Messiah first and foremost, but you'll be moved by the Holy Spirit to serve your fellow man. Let's keep reading Paul. This is Romans chapter 15, and we're looking at how this ties us back into the uh, the study in Romans 14. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 15, for, and usually when he says for in his chapters, he's going to substantiate something he just said. So this is his explanation or his his um uh proof texts. And often when he says for, he's going to introduce a quote from somewhere else in the Bible so that he can prove what he just stated. So he's he's on this whole topic of serving one another and um and uh putting ourselves uh back, right? Not to think too highly of ourselves, but to serve the other man our fellow uh, brother and sister in Christ. And he says, for Christ did not please himself, right? Yeshua could have just said, you know, he could have walked around with his head held high and said, you guys need to, need, you, need, you guys need to understand. I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. You guys just need to get in line. You need to serve me. You need to re- 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 recognize um, who you're dealing with here, right? Look at me. Look how high and lofty I am, right? I came down from heaven. You guys need to get in line. He could have done that. Yeshua could have done that, right? Because he had all authority and power vested in him, right? God the Father granted him this authority, right? To, to go where he went and to, to cast out demons, to heal the sick and to raise the dead and, and you know, all those things. Yeshua could have had that, you know, haughty, high-minded, proud uh, attitude about himself, but he didn't. He didn't. What did he do? He came and he washed the disciples' feet. He became a servant to his very own disciples. And they, they were even like, Lord, no, no, no. I think Peter was one of the ones who objected. No, Lord, not, no, no, no. I should be washing your feet. And Yeshua was like, no, 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 no. All scripture, all prophecy needs to be fulfilled. The Son of Man came to serve 
He came to serve. And so he didn't come to please himself, as it is written. Right now, Paul's going to make a quote from the Tanakh. And I think this is Isaiah. He says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And it's really neat how, even though it's the um, prophet writing, Paul pulls these words and puts them in the mouth of Yeshua, the Messiah. And then he continues, for whatever was written in former days, this is Paul's writing, was written for our instruction, speaking of the Tanakh, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, and what scriptures would Paul be referencing? Of course, it's the scriptures of Israel. There are no other religious writings that Paul is going to appeal to. There was no Quran available at the moment, right? That's not going to come along for another 500 or 600 years with Islam and things like that. There's no... um, uh, Buddhist scriptures that Paul is going to try and import from the you know the Far East or Eastern religions or things like that. He's not going to be pulling any any mystical writings. He's not going to be making any appeal to the Zohar, right? That's not going to come along. Uh, you know, Lurianic Kabbalah is not going to show up in Judaism for several hundred, a thousand years. He's not going to be quoting from the Talmud, even though it was somewhat in oral circulation at the time. Uh, he's not going to be quoting from other rabbis for his authoritative uh, perspective. Um, he's not going to be pulling from his his uh, pocket version of chicken soup for the soul or anything like that. He's going to make his appeal to the scriptures. The the um, the only body of received truth that was handed down to Israel, passed along from Moses to the other leaders of Israel. This is Paul's Bible, right? The Tanakh. These scriptures are the ones that we might have our hope in. Paul says. In verse 4. And in verse 5, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So there's the key. Again, not looking to our own um, clever um man-made programs to try and solve the problems that we have in and of ourselves. Not that our own programs are bad, don't get me wrong. Rather, we need to appeal to something greater and stronger and more um, secure than we could put together in and of ourselves. It's reliance upon the Holy Spirit, and that's what Paul's doing as well. In verse 6, he he continues, that together you may with one voice, right, there's that unity, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, the Romans had problems, right? I mean, all communities have problems. But thankfully, Paul knows the solution. It's the same solution for our problems today. If your church has infighting, well then, I can promise you, start by getting your eyes off of the faults of one another and put your eyes back on Yeshua. Let's pray, let's turn, let's change, let's confess, let's um, uh, uh, look and, and look to support one another. I mean, I'm just giving you some general guidelines here, but you, I think you guys are catching the idea. The solution is to look to him who can strengthen us and unify us by his precious Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, Paul says, therefore, and I like it's like one, one preacher used to say, whenever you see a therefore in the passage, you need to stop and ask why what it's there for, right? <laughs> therefore, Paul says, this is kind of like a semi-conclusion is what therefore means. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Again, we're looking to the perfect example, Yeshua, our Messiah. For the glory of God, this is why we should be doing what we're doing. It's for the glory of God. Christ, the hope of what? 
Jews and Gentiles, or I should say who. Remember, I keep emphasizing this element, this dynamic. We don't see this very much in today's church circles. We've kind of lost this because we've kind of washed away a lot of the distinctives between Jew and Gentile and Messiah. We just kind of washed it all out under the guise of Gentile Christianity. Therefore, it's difficult to kind of express your Jewishness. I'm speaking from experience, people. This is coming from a guy who has visited quite a few um, Christian churches in his in his 50-plus years of living, and I often encounter people who are kind of shocked to see this Jewish guy sitting in a church, right, with a kippah and tzitzit and, and talit and, and sometimes even, uh, you know, side curls and a big long beard. You know, they think I'm out of place. Like, don't don't you belong in the synagogue down the road, fella? Um, well, in Paul's day, we still had a healthy expression and representation of Jews who were moving in and amongst the um developing Christian communities, if you want to call them that, the churches, because um, religious talk of a Messiah was first and foremost centered in Israel. It wasn't something that Gentiles were kind of um, used to hearing and talking about uh, before they came to God. It wasn't really a topic of interest in your average Gentile household, is the point I'm trying to say, your average um, pagan household of Rome and of ancient Greece. Um, But um, messianic expectation was high in, in, in the first century. So the hope of Jews and Gentiles, this is a very strong element in the first century churches. Let's keep reading. Um, in verse 8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who are they? The, the Jewish people. To the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, right? He, he he continues using this example of who Yeshua is to us as not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. And Paul continues, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Let me just give you one hermeneutic key to understanding Paul's scriptures, Paul's writings a little bit more uh, a little bit more easily. When you're reading through Paul, it's helpful if you remind yourself that all throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he constantly had to deal with the very real socio-religious issue that uh, uh, cropped up, issues that cropped up among Jews and Gentiles in his day. And so it's quite natural when you read through Paul's writings to forget in our 21st century mindset that Jews and Gentiles were two communities that were being brought together uh, to iron out their differences and not to erase their distinctives, but to highlight the truth of the Abrahamic promises given to Papa Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you great, and make your name great, and those that bless you will be blessed, and those that curse you will be cursed, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That promise, which is a snapshot of the gospel, forms the foundation for Paul to teach that Gentiles have been brought into the family of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. That foundational truth that the gospel, that the body of Messiah is comprised of Jews and Gentiles brought into this one family together is a key factor, a key element in Paul's writings 
It's why this idea is so under attack by today's um, uh, skeptics and critics and um, scoffers and mockers and people who don't believe that the Bible's worth reading, right? Jews and Gentiles and Jesus, give me a break is what they say. And the, the, the church um, washes all the Jewishness away by saying we're all just one in Messiah. And the Jewish synagogue uh, says there won't ever really be a place for Jesus in our in our you know uh, in our synagogues uh, because he's he's the God of the Gentiles and so the devil has just gone to the bank by raking this Jew and Gentile identity across the coals he just hates that and so it's no wonder why he fights against that but Paul is going to turn to that over and over again as an element of the true gospel Jews and Gentiles glorifying God together together for his mercy. Let's read this. Paul's going to make his quote from the Tanakh once again. As it is written, therefore, now keep in mind, Paul is using a, a tool known as Midrash here to put the words of the prophet into the mouth of Yeshua the Messiah. So as you read this quote here, which again, I think is another quote from Isaiah, Consider that this is the prophet speaking, but but spiritually as if Messiah is opening his mouth and speaking to the church. Listen, this is Yeshua speaking. Therefore, I, the Messiah, will praise you, O God, my Father. I, the Messiah, will praise you among the Gentiles. Why is that significant to Paul? It's because it's the Jewish Messiah praising his Father God among the Gentiles, not only among the Jews, not separate from the Jews, right? That would be entirely, um, what do we say, proper from a Jewish perspective. We've got the Jewish Messiah praising the God of Israel among the Jews. There's nothing unnatural about that. That's entirely how Israel perceived their own scriptures as they read through the words of their prophets. Here we have our own Jewish prophet. He's one of our own. He's one of our boys. He's an Israelite. He's praising the God of Israel, and he's doing it among the Jewish Israelites, right? That's natural from their perspective. But Paul understands that the core of the gospel is rooted in Yeshua, but it also includes this element of, you ready for it? The Jewish Messiah praising God among the Gentiles. Now look at this. This I'm pausing and I'm going a little bit longer in my Roman study for this reason. This is the, Ma- the Messiah speaking. This is his example. And if Paul thought it necessary to bring in the, 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 the example of the Messiah doing this, then how much more, how important it is for us to follow the example of the Messiah, right? That's the whole theme that we're looking at here. He's trying to get us Jews and Gentiles to stop fighting amongst ourselves, fighting over food, and to get us focused on Yeshua's example. And what is Yeshua's example? He's praising his father, not just among fellow Jews. He had every right to do that because he himself was Jewish, but he's doing it among the Gentiles. So Paul continues with his quote, praise you among the Gentiles, this is Yeshua speaking, and sing to your name, right? Speaking of Yeshua. And again, it is said, this is Paul quoting the prophets, but putting the words into the mouth of the Jewish Messiah. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Who's the his people? Who who are they? Who are the his people in this quote from the Tanakh? The his people are the existing 
Israelites who were already praising and rejoicing in God. They're the existing people group of God that Paul recognizes as the faith community, the family of Abraham from the Jewish side of the argument. That's who the his people are. It's the Gentiles, the grafted in branches, who are brought into this picture, who are also to rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Why am I emphasizing this? Because today's modern religious groups, particularly the church, we've lost this message. We don't see that the Gentiles are supposed to be rejoicing with the Jewish people with Israel. We've lost this. We've lost this altogether. I can sit in church after church after church, and I'm not going to hear this message. I'm not going to hear this. We are supposed to be rejoicing with the Jewish people. I don't hear this at all. And you're certainly not going to hear it from the synagogue. They're not going to say that the Gentiles should be rejoicing with us. No, there's that exclusive, oh, we're the Jews, and we've got the law of Moses, and it's our law. It's our Torah. It's for us. You guys don't get it. You guys don't get to partake in it. That's what you're going to hear. But Paul's like, no, no, Jews and Gentiles should be worshiping together. Now, of course, this is primarily aimed at the brothers. Don't lose that picture. It's primarily the believing element of Israel. It's the remnant of Israel that this first and foremost applies to. But ultimately, Paul has this eschatological view toward the um, future of Israel, where all of Israel will be saved one day. Go back and read Romans chapter 11, right around verse 26, 27, 28, somewhere around there. So he continues in, in chapter 15 here. And again, so he gives three quotes. And again, and this time he actually does um, uh, push into uh, identifying that it is Isaiah. He says, again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. So Paul's working from this idea that Jews and Gentiles should have one unified voice when it comes to praising God and serving the Lord together, not separated by our ethnic and social socio-religious differences. You guys are Jews, we're not Jews. You know, the laws for Jews only, the Torahs for Jews only, all that other nonsense and, and a lie from the adversary. Paul says in verse uh, 12 of chapter 15, and this time he gives Isaiah the um, recognition or the um, the um the credit and again Isaiah says the root of Jesse and of course we know the root of Jesse is Yeshua right the Messiah the root of Jesse will come and what will he do even he who arises to rule the Jews only that's what it says right that's what it says in your Bible right so it says in my Bible oh no 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 that isn't what it says right he says he's going to come to rule the Gentiles to rule the Gentiles and um in him Paul says speaking of Messiah in him will the Gentiles hope so this is all about Paul recognizing that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, put himself in a place where he included the Gentiles in the praise of God, in the recognition of, of his father, and in the um, the rulership uh, that he would establish on earth. And then he concludes in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. There's our peace there again that we uh, talked about uh, Paul um, pursuing in uh, Romans chapter 14 or in around verse 19. We're of uh, 19 or 20 or 21. Pursue the peace, right? Uh, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that under your own power, right? That's what Paul's appealing to. Under your own power, you might have um, strong fellowship and uh, uh, agreement and a great uh, oneg, and you guys can all get along under your own power, right? Is that what Paul appeals to? Nope. Now you guys see where I'm getting it from. He says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
spirit, you may abound in hope. So in the end, we have to recognize it's not about our own clever human programs, as good as they are, as harmless as they are in and of itself in the big picture. But in the end, if we've got differences, we've got to settle them with one another as we rely on the the um, uh, example that Messiah left for us. And even more than that, the power of the Holy Spirit that he in, 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 in filled us with, that he in, 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 um, empowered us with, that he, that he uh, uh, placed within us, right? Not just as individuals, but as communities. And I think what I'm going to do is, I was going to read all of this tonight and just wrap it up tonight, but um, I don't want to rush it. Uh, I've already gone a little bit over on the Roman study, and I'm going to push it to one more week. Who says I have to finish this up in uh, in 2021, right? I mean, I'm the author of the commentary, so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to push this over to next week. We'll pick this up, and we'll read this uh, paragraph, this paragraph, uh, a few more references, uh, and then um, we'll finish this up maybe next week. We'll see. Uh, it's quite a long commentary. We'll, we'll see. But that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh, my let me just um, give you some um, just some additional um, information by way of announcements. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Lyman Hanavi. I'm a congregational member at Kehilatnova, the, the Harvest Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at www.graftedin.com. We'd love to, love to have you join us in person when we are having services, or uh, join us at least on our, um, as you scroll down and look at my page there, look at the um, YouTube resources that we make available uh, week after week. These live internet studies are brought to you um, via my own uh, congregational website. I'm sorry, not my congregational website. Let me lower that a little bit. There we go. My own personal Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Visit me online and um, uh, avail yourself of all the resources that you see available there on my screen right now. Also, I'd like to have you check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate's A Torah Ministries when you get a chance. Uh, have a look at all the videos that I produce on a weekly basis, really on a daily basis. Uh, make sure you subscribe, hit the channel, uh, hit the bell for notifications, um, hit the thumbs up if you like the videos. Uh, make sure you're leaving comments and sharing the videos with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. The live internet studies are brought to you week after week. Uh, um, we meet for an hour each week, each Saturday afternoon from about 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. If you can join us via Skype, um, this is episode number 165 that we're conducting right now for January 8th, 2022. Uh, we just finished up the um, Romans 14 Unplugged segment, the 30-minute segment. We're now turned, we're now poised and ready to turn to the um, Exploring the Shema, which is a discussion on Trinitary, Trinity, Trinitarian issues. And then if we've got time, we'll watch the um, the YouTube. YouTube video on why did God require animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. But for now, let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and keep working our way through this uh, uh, section, who or what is the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God versus the Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit. And we are supposed to be reviewing if I'm correct, uh, this topic uh, inter uh, introduced in Romans chapter 8 about Yeshua was raised from the dead by whom? Who raised Yeshua from the dead? Who is it that raised Jesus from the dead? Who raised Yeshua from the dead? And who resurrected him? And we looked at God questions a month ago. We've been we've been out of a meeting for about a month um, because of the holidays and because of 
because of um, New Year's and um, uh, things like that. So let's jump back into our studies. Um, we looked at God questions uh, answer about who resurrected Jesus. And we found out from there, go back and listen to show number 130, 164. Um, we found out there that basically the entire Trinity, right, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were all involved in bringing Yeshua back from the dead. Let's take another perspective, and we'll do this tonight. We're basically in the same position. Um, this is a resource known as um, blueletterbible.org. We've got an author here uh, by the name of Don Stewart, and he raises the same question. Who brought Jesus back from the dead? So let's, let me just blow it up there a little bit. So let's just read through this, and this will form the, uh, the core of our study, and then we'll uh, begin to wind things down with our liturgy and things like that. The Bible has much to say about the mode of Jesus' resurrection. It testifies that the three members of the Trinity were involved in Jesus' resurrection. And so this is um, a kind of an excursus, uh, um, a, a kind of a, a bit of a digression on the topic of who or what is the Holy Spirit. But we're talking about primarily, was the Holy Spirit involved in the resurrection of Yeshua, the resurrection of Jesus? Well, first, um, uh, Mr. Stewart, I believe he's a pastor. I think I'd probably just call him Pastor Stewart. He says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says that God the Father brought Jesus back from the dead. Uh, so here's how he um, uh, he's going to pull some quotes in from uh, the Bible, from the New Testament primarily. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. These are, of course, the words of Peter in Acts 2, 32 and 33. So, right away, who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father. God rose, raised Jesus from the dead. But we also see that when we get into the epistles, that Paul is also going to say these same things, these same words, he's going to echo these same sentiments that Peter did. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus, or just as Christ, was raised from the dead through who? The glory of the Father we too may live a new life. That's Romans 6, 4. And then Paul wrote to the uh, communities at Galatia. And here's what he had to say in the first chapter, their very first verse. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So unmistakably, if someone asks you, who raised Jesus from the dead? You can't go wrong if you say God the Father. That's the primary way, in my understanding, and in my research, that's really the primary way that the Bible conveys uh, the identity of who raised uh, Jesus from the dead. But let's keep reading. By raising Jesus from the dead, this pastor says, by raising Jesus from the dead, God the Father reversed the death sentence that was pronounced on him and exalted him to the Lord of glory. So Yeshua had to be raised in order for scripture to be fulfilled, in order for the plans of God to be revealed and to be unfolded uh, before mankind. And yet, and yet, as we keep studying, what we're going to find, and this is just the Bible talking, this isn't Ariel's opinion, all of those Unitarians out there who like to cherry pick passages, I'm not saying all of you do that, but those of you who like to focus on Focus your study and stop on the Pauline passages or the book of Acts like we just saw and say, it's clearly God the Father. We can stop right there. I say 
No, the Bible's a little more nuanced than that. We can't just stop right there because look what we read elsewhere. Let's turn to the book of John. Jesus brought himself back from the dead. Now we have to pause and let that sink in. How is it that the Bible teaches that God the Father raised him if he talks about having this power in and of himself? This pastor says Jesus also rose by his own power. So what what scriptures do we have to demonstrate this? First, we have John 2, verse 18 and 19. Quote, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Notice, why didn't Yeshua simply tell them, Destroy this temple, and God my Father will raise it again in three days? That would have been consistent with what we're going to read about later on in Acts, what we're going to read about later on in Romans and in Galatians, right? God the Father will raise it again in three days. But Yeshua puts these words into the thoughts of those those um, religious Jews there, something for them to think about. I will raise it again in three days. Notice the nuance. Notice the, the cryptic um, uh, ambiguity, as it were, the, the equivocation that Yeshua's introducing into their minds, right? I thought only God had the power of resurrection. Isn't God the one that's going to raise us up in the last day, like we read about in the book of Job and in Daniel and things like that? You know, the Tanakh talks about resurrection as well, which the Pharisees believed. And yet, Yeshua's saying... I will raise it? Why would he introduce that that complication? Why would he introduce that that challenge to them, right? These are things that we need to consider when we're having these discussions on the issues of Trinity. Speaking of his life, Yeshua made this declaration elsewhere in John, right? I love the book of John. He just he and the, 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 the religious Jews are just going at it time and time again. No one takes it from me, speaking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He doesn't even give the power of death to uh, to God, as it were. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Now, if we just stopped and broke the verse off right there, then he would really just be sending their minds into full tilt, right? I'm going to... Lay, allow myself to be killed, and I'm going to take bring my life, bring myself back from the dead, right? And they, their minds just would have been blown from that information. But I think to soften the um the the whole discussion, he adds these final few f- uh, words, this last phrase. He says, "This command I received from my Father." So he brings the Father back into the picture, so that we can at least begin to incorporate the idea that okay, this guy just isn't trying to displace God. He's Somehow in the program with God, he's got some powers that are equal to God, but he's not trying to take over the throne, right? He's still um, defers back to the Father. I mean, how does that work? So this is, again, important in our discussions when we're talking about who Yeshua was and how he's revealing himself uh, to people that he uh, uh, interacted with. And now, um, so we've looked at God the Father and Yeshua's own power, and now let's look at um, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And this is where we um, pull in our Romans quote. The third person of the Trinity was also involved in the resurrection. 
this particular um, pastor that we're quoting from, uh, this particular author, he quotes Romans 8.11, which is what began this particular excursus in the first place. Paul writing again, now keep in mind that Paul already wrote to the Galatians and he already wrote earlier in Romans that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But now look what Paul writes. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, in all fairness, it is entirely possible to interpret this passage here in Romans 11 as speaking of God. Because it says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if it's the Father, then it's the spirit of the Father, that's the subject, who's living in you. He, the Father who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Father's spirit who lives in you. We could insert that. That's entirely theologically accurate as well. But the fact that Paul didn't supply the word Father or God there gives us room for the equivocation, for the the, the slightly ambiguous, uh, am, am, ambiguous nature of this passage to actually be talking about the Holy Spirit himself. And if the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, which is theologically accurate, the Holy Spirit does live in us, he who raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through this Holy Spirit who lives in you. So that could work as well, because the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit is, is uh, issues forth from the Father. We know that from reading through the book of uh, John as well. And then Peter, speaking of this same Holy Spirit, um, he also brings in this verse for our consideration. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Ready for this? He, speaking of Yeshua, was put to death in the body, but made alive, are you ready for it? By the Spirit. By the Spirit, Peter? Peter, aren't you reading Paul's writings properly? Didn't you read through the book of Acts? Didn't you tell us in the book of Acts that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Why are you telling us that Yeshua was made alive by the Spirit? Now, I know what the Unitarians are going to say. They're going to say, there's nothing in here that says it's the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in here that says it's the Spirit of Jesus. We, once again, just like the Romans passage, could be the Spirit of God, right? And I, I get that theologically. That's accurate. We could accept that reading. Let me read it, reread it for you the way our Unitarian might read it. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He, Christ, was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit of God. Notice I added those two words at the end, of God. That's the way a Unitarian would interact with this particular passage. And when we say Spirit of God, we mean the only Spirit that God has, not necessarily a third person of the Trinity, Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God, like I would speak about the Spirit of Ariel, is not a third person. The Spirit of Ariel is first person, because Ariel and the Spirit are the same person. So the Unitarian doesn't believe in second and third persons of the Trinity. He only believes in one identity, one entity, one single God, and thus there's only one person, and so the Spirit of God is God himself. That's the way they're going to interact with us. But but Peter introduces equivocation. He introduces a little bit of a slight ambiguity that could be read as the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. And so this is scripture that's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, and thus we have to allow for those other ways of looking at that 
which are in harmony with Trinity. There's nothing against this. It's not like um, this is a triadic passage, to be sure, because it talks about, it mentions Yeshua, it mentions God, it mentions the Spirit. That's what I mean by triadic. But Peter is not uh, introducing theology that is contrary to what we would already read about in the Tanakh. And then um, along with that, so we have God the Father raising Jesus, we have Jesus raising himself, we have the Holy Spirit. Now this author is going to remind us that if we take the, the title Father out of the equation, there are other places in the Bible where it's just God who raised Jesus from the dead. And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? Isn't God the Father? Well, according to the, the, uh, the um, monarch, monarchical view, monarchian view, mon uh, not the... Um, not the, um, my, my, oh, I'm confusing some of my terminology, but Dr. Bo Brantz's perspective on the, uh, um, the fact that God is the eternal father, uh, that we studied in our uh, Trinity study, uh, months ago. Um, according to this perspective, uh, God is the father, and yet, at the same, by the same token, um, if you allow for a Trinitarian perspective that when we say God, there's this slight ambiguity, a little bit of equivocation on the word God that could be referring to which person, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Then we're really kind of talking about the being of God without focusing on the person's aspect, right? It's the ontological trinity rather than the economic trinity. God raised Jesus from the dead. And um, when we talk about God raising Jesus from the dead, we, uh, this author says, we also have statements that God raised Jesus. Let's quote Peter once more. Acts chapter 2. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is Peter again in Acts chapter 2. God raised him from the dead. And notice it doesn't say God the Father. And that's that's uh, significant. Uh, Peter also said to Cornelius uh, in Acts again, uh, quote, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. So God instead of God the Father, right? But God is the Father. I understand. I understand that. Don't 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 get all up in arms just because Peter dropped the word father there. But the point I'm trying to make is we could make the argument that this is the ontological ontological aspect where we're not focusing on a person when we say the father. Because it is true that Jesus is not the father. The Holy Spirit is not the father. So when we're talking about economic trinity versus ontological trinity, well then, from that perspective, it's important to distinguish father, son, Holy Spirit from one another. But when we just say God... We're not having that discussion. We're just talking about the being, right? As Dr. James White is fond of saying, one what, three who's. The what aspect of God is the 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 ontology, the nature of, of who he is, or I'm sorry, the nature of what he is as God, full the deity. Um, but when we say uh, the who, right, one what, three who's, then we're talking about the persons. So Peter seems to be talking about, he's in the category of the what, uh, the, the 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 deity, and then Paul's going to bring some uh, words in to the discussion as well. God raised him from the dead, Acts chapter thirteen, verse uh, thirty. But God raised him from the dead. Uh, that's uh, P, uh, Paul speaking at that point in time. So um, what I say in my commentary is that 
I'm sorry, not what I say, what uh, this uh, pastor, Pastor Don Stewart, I believe, he says, in these contexts, God could refer to the Father or to the entire Trinity. And that was the um, point I was trying to bring out earlier as well. The word God there is equivocation. It's equivocal. It's it's slightly ambiguous when we say God. Uh, Not that they didn't understand who God was. They understood. Rather, they're not arcane articulating exactly what person of the Trinity they're referring to when they're saying God there. Thus, that's what I mean by slightly ambiguous. It's not that they don't know who God is. Don't misunderstand when I say when I say ambiguous. What I mean is that um, the discussion about God in the scripture here could be God the Father, could be God the Son, God, could be God the Holy Spirit, um, but the, 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 the name is not there, the title is not added next to the word God, and that's what I mean by the slightly, uh, slightly ambiguous, the, um, the slight ambiguity there, the equivocation. So, this particular pastor uh, has this particular summary, and here's what he says in this uh, summary. All three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, were involved in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the end of the discussion. The resurrection is individually ascribed to each one of them. And so thus, uh, in conclusion to this particular um, excursus that we looked at on the uh, Holy Spirit, who or what Holy Spirit that we're addressing here, and we're going to turn to that next week as we continue down that road in my own uh, commentary. When we're having these types of discussions of Trinity, it becomes necessary. These are just some some, uh, pointers that I can pass along to you. And my... um, um, my own particular experience of having these discussions with um, Unitarians and, and other people who don't hold to a Trinitarian model is that when you're having discussions, it's helpful right up front to have your terms defined, um, to articulate uh, exactly what you mean by God, um, exactly uh, who you're trying to um, describe when you quote passages, what your perspective is on the term God when you're quoting certain passages. Um, you know, when it says Jesus is God, are you trying to say that Jesus is God the Father? I hope not. Um, I hope you're trying to say that that Jesus is deity, uh, that he's full deity, that he's divine, uh, things like that, when you as a Trinitarian are saying that Jesus is God. Because many other non-Trinitarian Christians, when they say Jesus is God, they're not referring to um, that type of perspective. They might say he's divine or uh, something like that. So uh, it would really help uh, in your discussions and in your arguments uh, to, to come to a better understanding of with one another if we try to kind of disambiguate uh, the terminology. And so that's going to do it for our look at exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's begin to wind down and uh, um, uh, look at our liturgy for tonight. I think what I'm going to do, um, for the sake of those who are in the class with me, I'm going to read all of this liturgy and do uh, this particular study uh, offline. I won't, I won't keep you guys here for that, but I'm going to do it and, and, and at, uh, attach it to the uh, uh, study. Maybe, maybe I might not even do it this week because I'm running out of time. Maybe I'll push this over to next week as well. Well, let's let's just do that. Um, liturgy is going to be looking at Jeremiah 31:31. We're going to be talking about um, the new covenant, and I'm going to do a kind of a miniature word study on the phrase "new covenant." And the takeaway, the short, the, the the TLDR version, for those of you who aren't going to maybe stick around till next week, is that um, when Jeremiah talks about New Covenant, and when the Bible talks about New Covenant, and we as Christians have discussions on New Covenant, there are 
two Hebrew words for the word new, and there are two Greek words for the word new. And in some discussions, there are um, separate nuances behind those words. They have their own kind of um, flavor that they're trying to spin that aren't exactly overlapped. But in other times, those words are just the the functional synonyms of the two different words for new in Hebrew and in Greek. And we're going to play with those words next week and see what kind of mileage we can get out of that by using uh, Jeremiah 31.31 as our core passage. But that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and E. Bible. Copyright Tate's Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question Why did God require animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Yeah, we're going to talk about that tonight. All right, there's my little avatar, and he says, In the period of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was given, among other reasons, as the vindication markers of the faith of an individual, that is, faith acted out in faithfulness. That's what I mean by that. Obedience played a big role in demonstrating true and lasting covenant faith. Individuals wishing to approach Hashem's sanctuary, God's sanctuary, were required to bring some sort of atonement for the sin they carried, and often the blood of the animals served this very purpose. It wasn't exclusively blood, um, but many times it was. Surely the animals themselves did not bring about lasting spiritual atonement, a permanent forgiving of the sin of the conscience. Yet, God saw fit to allow His perfect plan of salvation, tied into the eventual coming of His Son Yeshua Jesus, to be acted out, as it were, through the temple rituals. The historical sacrificial system was effective in cleansing sin, that is, sanctifying of the flesh, restoration of ritual purity, as well as cleansing, wiping the sanctuary, but ultimately, it proved to be a mere shadow pointing to the true body of sacrifice found only in the perfect lamb of sacrifice. The sacrificial system was not designed to accomplish for the individual the goal of purging the conscience. Even though it was a limited solution, it was authentically God's solution. No Jew living in that time period was able to circumvent the system and remain officially within the community. That is, no Israelite. I say Jew there, but you guys understand. So my avatar says, if we take Hashem seriously, then we will accept His provision no matter what means or how limited that provision is. And this is our first lesson in Torah logic. The older idea that atonement was only a temporary fix for sins for those who lived in the time period before the coming of Messiah must be abandoned. The idea of atonement as portrayed in the scriptures encompasses both a temporal aspect as well as an eternal one. To be sure, Yeshua himself stated emphatically that he was the way and that no man can come to the Father except through him. Sounds pretty exclusive. The sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real-life forgiveness, but only to the purification of the flesh. However, the mortal blood of the animals in and of themselves and by themselves could not even take away sin. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice to which the animals pointed could purify both flesh and soul. So, you guys tracking with me so far? It's... it's the mortal blood plus eternal blood working together. Thus, you could say that the blood of the animals ritually washed, wiped clean the participants as well as the holy place where God manifestly dwelt. 
So, the objective faith of the individual still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely, Yeshua himself. Yet his obedience was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. So he had an objective, uh, 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 an object of faith that he was thinking about. What is more, the salvation of the eternal soul of an individual was always dependent upon a circumcised heart, exactly as it is today. Nothing has changed in God. So, let's draw a summary to what we've been uh, talking about so far. The sacrificial system was not designed to bring the participants to the goal, namely a purged conscience and salvation of the individual. Sacrifices were for dealing with sin in the flesh, for restoration of ritual purity. So we got earth, and we got the sacrifices, and then we got heaven, and we got Yeshua's sacrifice. And how do these two fit together? Only genuine faith in the promised one could move God's heart to reckon to one's account righteousness as was done for Papa Abraham. That's Abraham. See how the two fit together there? The Torah was actually weak in that it could not bring to the goal of salvation of the heart an individual. Only the Spirit's supernatural work could and always will be able to do that. So the Torah had its built-in weakness. Guys, understand so far? All right. Catch my podcasts available on iTunes. Search term Ariel Hanavi. And of course, as always, I park my commentaries on YouTube as well. So be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. Hit that little bell to make sure you're receiving updates because I add new content weekly. In fact, I add it daily. Let's go ahead and dismiss in prayer, and then I'll open the class up for discussion uh, for the live students, okay? Abba, I bless your name, and I'm privileged to uh, count myself among those who are um, diligent to press in and study your words. Not that this makes me... um, uh, uh, impervious to error, not that this puts me in a class where I'm perfect, not that this makes me a, a, a superhuman Christian or something like that. Rather, I'm like everyone else. I'm just pressing through. I'm pressing in because I'm I'm hungry. I'm hungry for truth. I want to know your words. I want to know what you have to say on the matter. Uh, I want to know what your answer is to address today's problems. So Lord, help me to to continue to be a student of the Word and to share my findings with others. Thank you for this opportunity that you have afforded me in this new year to share these uh, teachings with uh, like-minded individuals from around the world. Uh, continue to raise us up and to protect us, especially from this um, this uh, increasing, uh, perplexing, um, distressing uh, pandemic that continues to rage on into this new year. Lord, we will look to you for our protection and for our healing. We'll continue to give you the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.